For the first time in the world, we were able to do this quantitative analysis of societal situations. But for overall as a field, we should see advances. So I'm also rooting for Oak Ridge to become number one. HBC is littered with cases of these failed startups and all the failed architectures that simply didn't make it, not because the hardware sucked, but because there was no software ecosystem. From Orion X in association with Inside HPC, this is the At HPC podcast. Join Shaheen Khan and Doug Black as they discuss supercomputing technologies and the applications, markets, and policies that shape them. Thank you for being with us. Hey, Shaheen, great to be with you again. Great to be here. We have a very, very special guest today. Yes, we do. We have one of the world's great computer scientists, Satoshi Matsuaka. He is director of the Riken Center for Computational Science in Japan, and he's also a professor at the Tokyo Institute of Technology. Satoshi, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really honored to be on this podcast, and hopefully we can have some uh, great time. Good. Thanks so much. Satoshi-san, I wanted to start by congratulating you for the Purple Ribbon Award that you were honored with recently and wanted to ask you if you don't mind commenting on that. It's a great honor. It's one of the very highest prizes you can receive as a researcher, academic, or Olympic gold medalist for that matter. <laughs> they also give them people like that. It's a recognition of your years of contribution to science, culture, sports, and so forth. And only like Two dozen people receive it each year, out of which like eight are researchers. You know, we have you know, tens of thousands of those people. So it's very honored that uh, my work has been recognized, but I think it's a recognition for the HPC field as well. I'm honored to represent the field to be receiving this award. Absolutely. I think it's quite an honor for the whole community. Now, do you get to meet with the emperor? Well, in normal times, but this is COVID time, unfortunately. <laughs> so they canceled. Oh, man. They had to cancel the event, and all they gave me was a sheet of paper. In fact, I don't ha even have the medal. I'll probably you know, tweet about it once I get the, the ribbon, but we'll see how it goes. That's excellent. All right. The first topic is, of course, supercomputing, and you have a long mm -hmm. history of it. But maybe we can start at the higher level and talk about the role of Japan in the supercomputing world and a segue into the award. How do you see that historically as well as into the future? Well, you know, Japan has always been strong at supercomputing. In fact, you know, if you look at across all the fields in information technology and, well, ICT, communication included, supercomputing is one of the domains where we still possess international competitiveness and other areas where, you know, we trail like US or other, yeah, like China, et cetera, far behind. But, you know, supercomputing, high computing is where we still are very competitive. Not only the series of machines we build, but also, you know, we got you know, quite talented sets of people, researchers and engineers and companies that can develop science engineering applications at the very high end. So I think this is very, we believe this is really important going forward for the society. As we know, of course, IT basically is very important as the infrastructure for the or sustainability and so forth for to, to sustain society. But the role of HPC is becoming uh, ever more important because, you know, we have to simulate, uh, do the AI, we have to do all these simulations, digital twins in cyberspace and so forth. And all these have basis in HPC. Yeah. So I think our competitiveness will allow us to sustain our competitiveness and, and also achieve SDGs in the years to come. Now, with the ISC conference coming up and the new version of the top 500 list, we're sort of assuming that Fugaku will still be the number one system. Well, in some benchmarks, maybe, maybe, because it's not, you know, there are several benchmarks that are important, including the top 500. In some of the benchmarks, we may still retain our number one spot. Some of the other benchmarks, of course, these are, you know, supercomputing is extremely competitive field. No machine stays on top for many number of years. There's always technologies advancing at a very rapid pace. And, and this time, if you know, we expect the, the U.S. Frontier machine by Oak Ridge, if they could submit the benchmark in time to become number one. But we don't know the status yet. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. That does so seem hopefully, to be Yeah, in fact, you know, personally, I'm hoping they'll become number one because you know, as much as <laughs> I'd like our machine to be number one again, because, you know, that shows progress. And, you know, it's good for us that we're number one consecutively, but for overall as a field, uh, we should see advances. So I'm hope I'm also rooting for Oak Ridge to become number one as well. Well, that's very sporting of you. But tell us a little bit about Fugaku and its use of ARM and what led to the decision to go outside of kind of the 
the HPC chip mainstream? You know, so Japanese supercomputing, if you look back many years ago, they've all been based on mainframe technologies. And in fact, the U.S. that as well, all the Cray vector machines, or even Europe. So in the past, all these in the 1980s and up to the early 90s, a lot of these technologies were based on mainframes. So you got a small number of nodes, low parallelism, but you know each processor is fast, being a vector processor. Then mid-90s came, the U.S. kind of stepped into using commodity chips for massive parallelism. First workstation, then PC processors later on. This basically was a way forward because hitting the limits of making a single processor faster. So uh, the days, the dawn of massively parallel computing came about, in, you know, in the early 90s. And then progressed forward now up to Fugaku, which is now sports 160,000 nodes or 8 million, almost 8 million ARM cores, which is an astonishing number. But still, Japan kind of remained a little bit Galapagos in, in a sense that um, the, although we, we started using commodity processors, at least for the national flagship machine, they, we still uh, retained the use of not so much proprietary, but, not, but non-mainstream processors like X86OR. So the previous K computer used Spark, which was you know, mainstream in the past, but now was fading away. And it's one thing to build a machine, but you know, modern IT... All the applications are very complex and require significant amount of support from the software ecosystem. You know, HPC is no exception. So being uh, harmonious with the uh, rest of the IT ecosystem is essential for software development and running of the application and establishment of services. HPC being no exception again. So that's why we made the decision to go ARM. Of course, the other option was to go to x86, but there were licensing issues. So, and, uh, you know, high-performance ARM became our target. And uh, we worked with ARM and other parties for about 10 years. Uh, we have the machine that's up and running that right now, which, you know, which is massive but very useful and very easy to program. Okay. So it was certainly not a departure from you. That's kind of what you're saying. Uh, well, it was, uh, but, you know, there was a big fight, in fact, because um, some people went in the early days of Fugaku, design. Some people want a continuation from K, meaning it would adopt the same ISA, the Spark ISA, or the modified, customized Spark ISA, because, you know, you obviously all the software, a lot of the software ecosystem had to be rebuilt. We had, you know, Weekend and others, we really stress, you know, if we are to have sustained, not just the machine, but sustained ecosystem, we really need to go mainstream. So there's a big argument, maybe like 2012, 2013, even with Fujitsu that was supposed to build a chip. But finally, the ARM camp won out. So that was, a, you know, that was a victorious day in some sense for not just for us, but for Gaku. And I think that's part of the success of Fugaku that really is buying into the you know, mainstream e uh, software ecosystem. Was there something that you could not do with Spark that you could with ARM? Because with K-Computer, you basically had a very nice architecture and already a lot of software developed. The reason I ask is because I personally was in favor of Spark. I thought, oh, okay. now, so I used to be at Sun, and I'm biased, but I also thought that you own it and you got all the IP, and it makes sense to just build on top of it. Well, not to put down my old friends that, uh, who used to be at Sun Microsystems, who now everybody in my Spark was a fine <laughs> processor, no doubt. I used the first uh, Spark Station. You know, Spark Station uh, 2 was my desktop essentially in my early days of my career. So, no, I know, I have no objections again. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Fine, it was just fine, fine risk. I said. Uh, having said that, you know, because of the various, uh, I would say, business and the whole ecosystem climate as a whole in IT, it did, you know, it's kind of lost its battle of being a uh, mainstream, you know, uh, ISA, the mm -hmm. overall ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there were other ISAs like IBM RPC, uh, Power and PowerPC, you know, there were Alpha, uh, Deck Alpha, you know, the, right. the plethora of various ISAs. But in the end, as we converged into the days of uh, PCs, not only PCs, but these not not just embedded devices, but you know, smartphones, tablets, and you know, cloud and so forth, uh, we just converged into two ISAs, XA6 and R. It only makes sense to buy into either one of them because uh, at the end of the day, of course, you know, performance-wise, it really doesn't matter which uh, that much, right. which I should adopt. It's really about the software ecosystem, availability of software. And, you know, people usually, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of people who just aspire, especially the hardware people. Again, they're fine people, but, you know, they uh, sometimes, you know, mm. come up with these uh, funky hardware, which has no software ecosystem, they just die. If you look at HPC over the history of time, 
Now, HBC is littered with cases of these failed startups and all the failed architectures that simply didn't make it, not because the hardware sucked, but because there was no software ecosystem. So so we took that lesson and you just uh, had to buy in. And uh, with regrets, we ditched Spark and uh, we bought ARM, yes. I think it's definitely true that the community involvement with ARM is significantly bigger now. Yeah, and you can say that. In fact, it's ARM SVE. So it's not just AC4FX, which drives Fugaku. But -hmm. now uh, many companies and those who will embed their chips, not only in mobile devices, but in the cloud, like, you know, Amazon Graviton 3, NVIDIA has the Grace chip, which will no doubt go into the cloud. Ampere has uh, their own processor, which uh, may go into other hyperscale clouds. Fujitsu is now designing a new version, uh, which will go into the cloud, again, with some SVE functionality. So, you know, all the software ecosystem we have developed and also the community jointly are developing right now uh, Mm -hmm. will drive this massive ecosystem, which will proliferate, not just on the single machine like Fugaku, but throughout the cloud ecosystem. So a lot of our applications that we develop, for example, will run fine on those machines and, and very fast. So I think we're making the right decision. And in fact, the fruit of its uh, our decision will, will even be greater in the next several years. You know, mm-hmm. Shaheen, whenever Fugaku comes up, Shaheen has mentioned this several times to me, that he sings the praises of Japanese supercomputers. <laughs> okay. It's, so, so well-balanced. Shireen, I've heard you say that many times. It's not just well-balanced, but also physically beautiful. <laughs> the K computer was just, I mean, I could, you could stare at it for hours and it was just beautifully done. <laughs> well, yeah. And I just love that. I think that's, uh, that shows, and then on top of that, it remains on the top 10 for decades, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, the K computer was HPCG. It just would not let go of that benchmark. <laughs> it was just so good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it has to be fight with uh, newer machines, but yeah. Well, yeah, and Fugaku looks exactly the same way. And I think in terms of it's being general purpose and it's being balanced and easy to program, and it just looks one end of the spectrum in my mind. Well, yeah, of course, that, that was our objective because we had to, in some ways, you know, a lot of these codes... Of course, are modernized. We ran the co-design program with Fugaku. And of course, there are certain hardware peculiarities like long vectorization and so forth that you, you know, you still have to tune your code. It's not, you know, you can run stuff, but, you know, to get maximum performance, you know, it's not that you're completely labor free. People still do have to do a lot of tuning to get max, max out the capability of the system. That said, uh, Seymour Cray, uh, basically once said it's the bandwidth. It's not about the flops. It's about it's about you know bytes per second. It's about the bandwidth in the system. And if you look at many applications, in fact, we've done some formal research on this and published several papers. Says that uh, you know, it's still a lot of these real applications that constitute simulations of certain forms for to realize digital digital wins is bound by memory transactions and not so much by compute. Now there are a few that are compute bound, but most applications are bound by memory bandwidth. If you look at a lot of these processors, they're more emphasizing more flops these days when not increasing memory bandwidth to the extent, uh, maybe except for GPUs, but normal CPUs are not you know, increasing memory bandwidth that much. Well, they are, but not to the extent of basic effects. And uh, in fact, they're not adopting it's been, what, four years, three, four years since the inception of basic effects, and still no other mainstream CPUs have adopted high bandwidth memory, HBM2, as a memory technology. You know, GPUs have, of course, but, you know, no other CPUs have done that. Intel is supposed to, you know, have announced Sandy, their, um, uh, their next generation, Sapphire Rapids, uh, with HBM2 last year or so, so, but they still haven't. Yeah, so being balanced or it's really about analyzing your applications and making sure you make the right investments. The counterpoint uh, the, uh, to this is if you look at the AC4FX chip, uh, the cores are much smaller, let's say, uh, compared to a Xeon. So that means, you know, for the integer performance, it's not as good as Xeon. So you really have to make sure you're not bound by some, you know, integer bottleneck. That's where this, for example, tuning occurs. But once you do that, this massive memory bandwidth really kicks in and you, know, and you get several times uh, faster 
application performance than uh, a comparable Xeon. Yeah, so uh, we made a lot of effort to make sure that the machine does what it's supposed to do, is to really drive real applications. So speaking of real applications, what are some of the uses that you've seen with the Fugaku system in recent times that you could share? Yeah, well, you know, of course, Fugaku being, like you say, general purpose, it just covers this plethora of applications from all around. But I'll maybe note two things in the interest of time. One is the diff- biggest difference we see, of course, you no, know, covers everything from like, you know, medical, pharmaceutical things, things like environmental, basically a lot of the sustainability goal type of applications, environmental from like climate change and things like that long-term, and also uh, short-term weather predictions and earthquake predictions, things like new uh, energy all the way from like huge wind turbines, 300-meter wind turbines to storing this uh, material studies on more efficient batteries and also better transmission technologies in the grid uh, to manufacturing all the way from um, very small molecular structures for, let's say, like high temperature heat resistant polymers, all the way up to building huge tankers and you know, uh, ships without, you know, for realizing for the first time a virtual, a virtual pool instead of wind tunnel, a virtual pool for, for uh, designing ships. So, you know, it goes all around. And we're getting tremendous number of realistic results uh, that are groundbreaking. Now, uh, compared to K-Computer, uh, the predecessor, it's not just my perception, but also everybody seems to have this uh, similar perception that uh, Fugaku, the fundamental difference between Fugaku and K, although, you know, similar programs are being, being executed, is the fact that, you know, K was more of a demonstrator machine. Although it was the fastest in the world, like, you know, 10 years ago, it didn't have enough capabilities to do, I would say, production in terms of really you know, running a whole bunch of stuff and you know, optimizing or searching for the best answer, because you can only do single-shot runs at scale. Whereas for Fugaku, uh, you know, it's about uh, 50 to 100 times faster compared to K. So now it's allowing people, the scientists and engineers, to do, I would say, real science and development as compared to K. They have this groundbreaking applications and they can run you know, numbers of instances of them uh, continuously such that they get groundbreaking results for real. So this seems to be a fundamental difference between K and Fugaku, that real results, uh, you know, game-changing results in the application space are being derived. One such area is, which we recently won the, the Gordon Bell Special Prize last year, was the application of, of the te- overall technologies to COVID. Uh, and of course, with, there are lots of COVID-type app, COVID, anti-COVID applications running on Fugaku. One, and one particular one was the simulations of uh, aerosols and how it spreads, how it spreads in, in the room and how it's inhaled and how it affects, how it affects you. This was sort of, this was groundbreaking in that the application was never designed for COVID, but it was, it was basically initially the application was developed, being developed uh, for K and also for Gaku for many years to simulate uh, things like engine combustion, you know, combustion in internal in, uh, engine, combustion in internal combustion engines. But then one of the researchers suddenly got the idea, you know, he was not an expert in like epidemiology at all, but suddenly got the idea that, hey, you know, with people coughing and they're spewing these aeros- droplets and aerosols all over. This is exactly what the injectors do in the engines. It's the same physics. Uh-huh. Yeah. So what they were able to do is take exactly the same code, even or tune the parameters because you know in engines the gasoline or the diesel fuel will burn, but combust. But you have to take that component out. Other than that, it's the same physics. So uh, you know, so the particles, for example, it's really meticulous. And that, for example, the particle as they travel through the air. It evaporates. You have to simulate stuff to that resolution. You know, it's not just you know, a, a simple CFD. So they were able to um, notice. And the other you know, groundbreaking stuff about uh, this particular simulation technology was it was able to generate uh, detailed digital twins of the societal situations in matters of minutes. Because if you know the CFD applications, especially with unstructured mesh type of uh, solvers, in commercial packages, for example, you know, it's one thing to solve it, to solve it, but to generate a mesh, a CFD mesh from, uh, from in detail from, let's say, your CAD data will take weeks. But, you know, we're, we're in this dire emergency situation where people are 
really, you know, panicking because they don't know because these aerosols are invisible. They don't know whether they should be wearing masks. They don't know whether they should ventilate and what's what, you know, well, they, maybe they can, but what's, what's the most effective way? Am I in danger? You know, there's no quantitative assessment of your risk, uh, of what the risk you're under because it's not, it's, it's all invisible. So for the first time uh, in the world, we were able to do this quantitative analysis of societal situations with respect to droplets and aerosols in a quantitative fashion. Of course, you know, matching with reality, we, we check our results. But matching with reality, but do, you know, hundreds of, uh, that, in fact, more than a thousand societal situations, you know, over the course of a year. And, uh, and then we announced every time we got great results, uh, we, we were able to announce this to the public and, you know, and then got TV and, uh, you know, internet coverage, and basically it became a government policy and basically saved a lot of lives in Japan and all, all over the world. But again, you know, this goes back to uh, both the application development we have been doing and serendipitous usage to aerosols. But the amount of compute we consumed for that application was something like 20 million node hours, which is about the same quantity of uh, compute available on the you know second tier, the top level second tier supercomputer in Japan. So basically, you had to take some you know this a supercomputer, which is still you know very powerful, you know tens of petaflops, dedicate that for uh, a single year to this air droplet aerosol application. You know we spent the, the same amount of compute time as that, effectively. Of course, the clock is faster, so you know got it done a lot quicker. But yeah, you know, this really testifies that we were able to have sufficient quantity of compute uh, coupled with these advanced simulation provide real solutions to society that was uh, really uh, saved lives and also easing the impact on the economy. So That's great. You know, I've shared this with Shaheen in the past that I think if we're talking about the general public, I think supercomputing is kind of an unsung hero of dealing with COVID in terms of developing a vaccine and some of the scientific work that you all were doing as well? Well, well, fortunately, you know, well, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't say fortunately because the whole COVID event was, it was very globally unfortunate for many people. But for us, uh, of course, it allowed Fugaku to be recognized by the general public uh, in a very positive way. In fact, it was really interesting because, you know, so if now, because it was carried all over in the news, everybody, like, you know, we did a survey, like 70% of people we surveyed know Fugaku in general public. Right? So, which is, which we're very proud because I don't think this has ever been replicated in any of the other countries that, you know, your flagship supercomputer in any other country is no recognized by majority of the public. So right. that's, that's great. Yep. But, but also, you know, the public has gained trust in what we, you know, they demonstrated trust in what we do. So, even, so it's really the professionals who question us, and for a very valid reason. I mean, it's, are your simulation results correct? You know, how did you validate your simulation? Well, what are the methods used? Of course, these are obvious questions that if you're a professional, you'd be asking. Of course, we have answers for those, you know, and we have confidence in the results. But the general public, you know, when, when we say this is a simulation results, these are simulation results from Higaku. And, and, you know, right away, they believe in this. They have trust in science. You know, they have trust in super, science done by supercomputing. And that really changed their social behavior. So, you know, we're really, um, I was really imp- um, I was, uh, impressed and, you know, uh, by the fact that, uh, you know, supercomputing has reached this level where, you know, people, general public has scientific trust and they would entrust it to change their behavior to the extent to, you know, protect themselves. So. That is such a profound contribution to society in general. Just wonderful. Very, very nice. I remember in 2020, say in the in the summer, there were predictions that we'd have a vaccine by the end of the year. And, a lot, you know, lots of people were very doubtful of that. But I really was very optimistic because I see all the literature and all the news and blogs and announcements coming out about what HPC was doing to work toward a solution. So... Certainly, gain my trust. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, absolutely. Well, still, it's very difficult to simulate, uh, you know, very large molecules like uh, antigens. <laughs> yeah, so we're yeah, mm-hmm. a lot of people, including us, are working on it. Yeah, still. So, Shaheen, should we move toward maybe a future look at supercomputing? 
Yeah, good segue to talk about the future of supercomputing. As we know in supercomputing, as soon as you're done with one, the next one starts. <laughs> so what could you share about the next project, number one? And number two, just how do you see the future of supercomputing shaping? I have seen talks and discussions from you about the specific architecture of supercomputing as it relates to homogeneity of nodes and oh, the yeah. productivity of applications and the challenge that we have in terms of providing performance for one single task as well as for an entire workflow yeah. and an entire programmer community. Let's let's discuss yeah, that. Yeah, so you know, super you know, building machine, well, I think this is across even true in any sort of engineering field. A machine which comes to fruition as a concrete entity is like a work of art, right? So you design it, you build it, it's there. But like you say, you know, it's it's a snapshot of your um, your best effort at it, usually. But as soon as you build it, you see, you know, you say, okay, I could have done this better. I could have done this better. You know, you have lots of uh, regrets, which has an after, it's always easy and it has an afterthought. And uh, even for Gaku, you know, there are several things we know we should have done otherwise, uh, but we didn't done. It just it wasn't me. Of course, it was a whole team of people just designing the stuff, but. There are a lot of things in retrospect we knew we should, you know, we could have done even at that time, even within a time frame of Fugaku's uh, inception. So, you know, lessons learned. And, um, uh, but with, like you say, when you look forward, of course, there'll be tougher challenges. As as much as industry says the Moore's Law, uh, we can extend the Moore's Law now with the new, with the, with UV lithography and, and a lot of new transistor structures and so forth. The difficulty is that, um, you know, both the power and the cost reductions are not as dramatic as it used to be. So before, the, when we had lithography reductions, we could also have expect reduction in power such that transistor increase would be canceled out with the power power reduction. So we have very similar power profile, but with the number of transistors increase, we can get performance. As, I mean, we can that translates to performance gains. But no longer. It's no accident that you're, you know, that a lot of the modern GPUs that's been announced, both in for the cloud and also supercomputing, and also for and for the, you know, consumer graphics. You know, you see GPUs that are like 600 watts or 800 watts. You know, I can grow my you know, bacon and eggs with with a GPU. So, yeah, or yeah, I can. You know, it's my home heater. So, but it's no accident because you know we're uh, the engineers are pushing the limits as to how much transistors they can pack into into a chip, and we're seeing uh, increase because the transistor power consumption is becoming f uh, flatter with respect to lithography shrinking. So this means that we are we have to find ways to advance performance. You know, from for example, from K to Fugaku. We had about 50 to 100 times uh, performance increase in, an, in a decade. But can we achieve sort of a similar magnitude of performance increase from Fugaku to Fugaku Next, we call, without <clears throat> incurring, you know, let's say we get you know, 50 times, 20 to 50 times performance gains, but it's impossible to attain that without 20 to 50 times increase in power, then we need a power, nuclear power station. So because Fugaku already uses like, you know, 19 megawatts, so times 20 is 400 megawatts. That's like a nuclear power station. So we really need to find ways to increase performance without this dramatic increase in power, coupled with the fact, you know, as I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that a lot of applications are bound by bound by data bandwidth as opposed to uh, the flops, except maybe for you know the most recent neural network, uh, deep neural network uh, transformers. And a few other apps, but, but most are bandwidth bound. So our thought is to really try to build the next generation by achieving dramatic increase in the bandwidth without dramatic increase in power. And how to do that? Well, you know, there are technologies that are already starting to be implemented, like 3D stacking, and also you know very fast on-die uh, chip-to-chip connection for chiplets, and and also some of the advances in photonics. Uh, for chip uh, for package to package type of communication, all of which, uh, if we do the right architecting, our projection is uh, it allows to attain significant you know orders of order of magnitude more than order of magnitude increase in bandwidth uh, compared to what you have let's say on Fugaku. 
So on a single package right now, for is a terabyte per second. So ideally we want to achieve more than, let's say on memory bandwidth, more than 20 terabytes per second memory bandwidth. But it's, you know, that's certainly, uh, we've done some assess early assessments and certainly that's, that would be possible, but with restrictions. For the next couple of years, two, three years, I think people will still be on the, this, uh, Limpac flops or some, or some sort of flops, uh, exascale bandwagon because that was the objective more especially for us and china of course we nearly had it we could have hit it actually but um we didn't we made choice we we would not although we could have and um but of course you know it's sort of exascale we hit exaflop and reduced precision so it's still an exascale machine by some definition you know so this uh, exascale flops bandwagon will continue for the next couple of years but then people start realizing that, uh, you know, that's not what the true application performance is as we advance. Uh, there are very detailed subject matters uh, with respect to this, which is kind of too long to be covered in this podcast. But basically, uh, we want to increase bandwidth. But with other physical limitations, we really need to uh, strong scale. That's the other thing, to strong scale, because we're not going to increase, let's say, the memory capacity and also achieve bandwidth at the same time. So uh, we have increased bandwidth but relatively small footprint. And for other reasons, um, like accelerating some compute bound, there are compute bound uh, strong scaling applications like molecular dynamics, all the way to uh, inferencing and deep learning. And all these are strong scaling as well. Uh, so we are shooting for technologies, how to achieve a dramatic increase in bandwidth, memory bandwidth, system bandwidth, and dramatic, uh, and reduction in latency such that we achieve strong scaling. I have a couple of other questions and hopefully we'll have time for them. Okay. One of them is that I read some material that you published at this point a couple of years ago about FPGAs and CGRAs, yeah. not just field programmable gate arrays, but coarse-grained reconfigurable architecture. Would you speak a little bit about the impact of that? So, you know, we, we believe that you know, workloads can be categorized into like three. One is compute bound, okay, flops. One is bandwidth bound, you know, bytes per second. And then one is latency bound, you know, microseconds to data access. Now for uh, bandwidth bound applications, we believe that general purpose processors with very fast memory of some sort, either CPU or GPU would be good. But for and compute bound, you may have, you know, lots of matrix engines like that's, you know, that's been now done by a lot of GPUs now. You have this tensor cores and all that, NVIDIA tensor cores and all that, matrix engines, and that's the right way to go. But what about latency bound? And these are important classes of applications. We don't, for normal processors, be it GPU or CPU, you can make the algorithms latency tolerant, right, by hiding latency and so forth, or you're making the algorithm fundamentally not rely on latency. But these are difficult and there are limitations. So fundamentally, we want, you know, if, the, if we are to make the hardware to be coping with latency, basically the only way to do is to kind of, you know, be able to ship data from one compute to the other, you know, with a small overhead, right? Instead of, you know, you're loading stuff into register from memory to register and compute, you then use for memory, you load it to another register on a different processor, you know, that, that takes a lot of overhead. Rather, if you can ship your data from one ALU to the other ALU, that's the fast, that's the quickest latency you have. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. So uh, CGRA basically would uh, be able to achieve that by basically connecting the compute units. You know, it's a, it's a classic data flow uh, architecture. Right, right, right. right. So for these latency bound applications where we don't have the good abilities to accelerate either on a CPU or GPU, we believe it may have a role in those types of apps like molecular dynamics or certain types of uh, inferencing in deep learning, you know, very quick, you know, quick turnaround type of uh, inferencing. You have to do like real-time systems because, you know, for even, you know, uh, deep learning neural networks, the data flow fundamentally for in the first place. That's right. But also streaming, also some perhaps not typically HPC applications, except in really high bandwidth, just streaming data from a satellite or from a radio telescope, right? Well, anything that requires not only well low latency response, real time, that like you know, like the one you mentioned, it's not just so much bandwidth; it's the latency that's in, that's involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of uh, so as we as the world moves towards applying HPC to digital twins, not just for postmortem or predictive analysis, 
but rather to do real-time responses. So, you know, you have the digital twin in cyberspace and you have a real entity, but somehow they're kind of connected. So, you know, you actuate on the real stuff and you get a response on the digital twin, you do something on digital twin, you actuate the real world, vice versa. These kind of real-time uh, connections between your digital twin and and, uh, and reality, you really need fast, low latency response. So, but that's the future we see, uh, like metaverse kind of stuff. But, you know, it's not so much metaverse in terms of, uh, you know, being able to do uh, like office conversations. I don't think that's the best use of metaverse. Right, right. But rather to really like, you know, replicate the entire city as a digital twin. And then, you know, really optimize, not only optimize system, but, you know, provide people with safety and also enrich people's lives in, in, in a real-time fashion. You have to have HPC in the background, but these HPCs will have to be real-time. So, right. so for real-time portions of your compute, these uh, CGRAs may have a role. So we're looking at it very closely to That's see brilliant. if it will be effective for the next generation. How about quantum computing? How do you see that happening in the future? Yeah, so you know we're very aggressively pursuing quantum computing. You know, Weekend has another uh, our sister center, Center for Quantum Computing, Weekend Center for Quantum Computing, RQC, and also it's RQC is a hub of this uh, what's called a quantum hub in Japan that federates lot of the quantum research in various institutions. So you know Weekend is really a centerpiece of uh, quantum computing research in Japan, and we're also building a physically a real quantum computer. And we collaborate, we at RCCS, we collaborate with these uh, compu- uh, quantum people who are doing quantum computing. In fact, we have people doing quantum computing by simulating quantum computers on Fugaku. So uh, either we can run a whole bunch of quantum computer simula- simulators, which are really efficient and fast on Fugaku. So uh, we have one of the fastest quantum computer simulators on a single node, but we have, remember, we have 160,000 of them, so we can run at the same time. Or we can exercise petabytes of memory in Fugaku to really increase the number of qubits we simulate. And we have various simulators uh, for various purposes, depending on what people want to do. Because right now, of course, these quantum computers are not only, you don't have enough bits, but also they're NISC, meaning you know, they are so error prone, that they have so much errors that they cannot be really used for real applications. So on one hand, we're doing that. And um, our next generation, we we hope to support uh, the simulations of quantum computers in even a better way. That said, uh, there are two problems. One is, of course, the um, quantum computers will not be replacing everything. In fact, the, right now, the, the number of the classes of applications, we anticipate quantum computers to be having a quantum advantage over large-scale supercomputers is very small. Right now, it's very, very small, right? Unlike the expectations of some, you know, speculators who say, you know, quantum computer replace conventional computers. No, we say, okay, even not just us, but the quantum computer experts are just laughing at, at those predictions, right? So, yeah, well, so quantum computers are good for something, but what is it good at? And that uh, we still need to increase the portfolio. And the only way we can do that is, that is not only to devise new algorithms, but really to compare these to the best algorithms we can run on a uh, supercomputer. Not just the ones that are good for quantum, but let's say you have material science simulations. And and uh, if you do quantum simulations in material science, how and when will it be better compared to the simulations done on a classical supercomputer? So we really need to investigate that to increase the portfolio. Even for those small sets of applications, it'll take years and years to reach the status where we'll have number of defective number of qubits to do things that were expected, like you know, like cryptography, for example. We need millions of hundreds, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands, even millions of qubits to solve cryptography. And we're like, you know, decades, could be decades away from that. Oh yeah, well. That's really yeah. so as we look at quantum computers and try to help people build them. Uh, and evaluate them, we really need to, for production purposes, we need to hone in on what's, you know, what's the killer app for quantum? For, yes. What's the killer app, right? So uh, that we can foresee in the next, you know, decade or so mm-hmm. in the real machine that will accompany uh, a supercomputer. So what's the, uh, so we're really looking at those seriously to see what can be replaced because, 
it's really a you know, benefit for both camps because if we know we can replace certain algorithms, and these algorithms are usually very compute-bound, right? then we can really, uh, if we can replace certain workloads, compute-bound workloads uh, with quantum, then we can you know, design our machine to be not so much emphasized on, let's say, the, the compute part, but we can really focus on the bandwidth part, which is, like I said, what the majority of, of applications reside. So there's quantum futures, there's non-quantum future, but figuring out what's the best best mix moving forward will really allow us to progress our compute capabilities beyond what each of the individual computers can do. So That's an excellent perspective. Thank you. Uh, if we have time, I wanted to ask a question about uh, the earlier part of your career. Ah. Your fans know that you had a bit of a start in the gaming industry, so you were ahead of the rest of us with all the graphics <laughs> and its impact on computing in this. And, and of course, you worked with the great Iwata-san, who went on to be the president of Nintendo, who left us too early and many years ago. But it's a period of your life that I have a personal interest and I know your fans do as well. Yeah, you know, you know, people say, you know, I get some interviews, but most of these interviews have been in Japanese. So maybe I should do a more comprehensive revelation of my uh, dark past. <laughs> 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 on the, in the dark, on the dark side. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, no, no. It was a pleasurable time. I think really uh, progressed my career as a, as a good programmer uh, because you know these were days with like eight bit, sixteen bit processors, very weak graphics, and we still we needed to be as optimized as possible. So it taught me a lot of uh, you know techniques to develop code very efficiently. So it was a it was a good moment during the early days of my career. So, uh, you know, there are many stories to tell, but just as a note, uh, a couple of notes. So a lot of these, a lot of the early CBM, uh, the PET or Commodore CBM games I had programmed, including the the famous Invader game, people know. Oh, yes. That made, yeah, that made a, that made a sort of a, a replica of that as much as I could uh, with the restrictions of the PET hardware. Uh, and this was written fully in machine language uh, in assembly. In fact, not in even assembly, it was a hand assembly, sort of hand, pseudo hand assembly. And it was only like eight kilobytes of, but you know, it runs, it runs the same. Essentially, I try to recreate the game experience as much as possible. There are other invaders, but I'm, I'm not going to criticize them, but you know, I think mine had the best um, sort of a replication of the experience of the game you, you would have uh, on a real Taito machine. So, you know, that was, you know, during high school, many years ago, and um, it became very popular. Uh, but, you know, recently I tweeted about that uh, because somebody tweeted, you know, this was, uh, you know, I played these invaders like significantly on, on pet and also emulators. I said, oh, yeah. And I saw that and said, oh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. You know, this is this is a game I programmed many years ago. <laughs> a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. That a guy running a supercomputer center and uh, his was a, as a game game programmer. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and uh, in fact, uh, it was great for me because, of course, got a lot of responses. But one of the guys, one of the people who responded, he was writing an emulator for the pet. He ported the import pet emulator uh, on an iPhone. So now I can play my uh, old game, which you know, like forty years ago or something, on my iPhone. The only downside is it doesn't have sound because I have sound. <laughs> But, you know, this simulator, some of the simulators on the PC, they have sound, but not on the iPhone yet. So I have to kind of play with this silently. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's it's been a great experience. The other experience I had was, so was one of the programs I programmed with Iwata-san was a pinball game for the early uh, Nintendo, the first generation Nintendo system, which was called a family computer in Japan. What it's called the NES and uh, rest of the world, and Nintendo Entertainment System. So, you know, it was uh, 6502 like Apple and CBM. And that's why. And uh, so Nintendo came because they had a tabletop, you know, you put in like quarters to play Donkey Kong and those kinds of games, uh, arcade games. But they wanted to uh, build a gaming home gaming machine. So they were porting their stuff over to this NES. Now, but uh, the Donkey Kong and those uh, arcade games they were using uh, a Z80, the Zilog Z80 processor, which was uh, an right. improved version of the 8080. And 65, but you know, the Nintendo, because of uh, hardware restrictions, they were they were using 6502, which is a completely diff different processor. 
very, very different. So they came, and so they lacked development skills, and so they came to this uh, company that uh, Iwata and others and founded. I was working there also part time, and uh, they came to us and said, "Well, can you program this?" I said, "Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, we're experts at six five zero two." And said, okay, "Okay, well, maybe um, uh, we'll give you a development environment." Oh, by the way, here's a sample code. So they gave us a sample code for the Donkey Kong, which they ported. Uh, from Z80 to 6502. And we're looking at the source code. I said, and this, and our first comment, this is probably the worst 6502 program <laughs> we've ever seen. <laughs> Nobody has programs like this. It's just, it's just horrible. And we immediately understood why they came to us. Right? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And of uh, course, again, you know, they had no experience. And then this pinball, it was a joint effort uh, by Watasan and me and the, uh, Uh, by the time I was studying computer science and also physics and so forth, so I, you know, I applied many of my learned techniques from uh, academic training over to, over to the machine of the program as well. But then we had some Easter egg programmed into, uh, you know, programmed uh-huh. without telling a Nintendo, uh-huh. yeah, uh, which would uh, you know display our names if you hit certain you know sequence of you know, commands on the button on the controller. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> Which a lot of, obviously people do, but of course we didn't tell Nintendo. <laughs> After like you know a million cartridges were produced, somebody found this out, and of course Nintendo was furiously. It's <laughs> <laughs> a great story. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they said, "Well, now this is just Easter egg. Nobody will know." Of course, you know, next version ROM, they of course took it out. <laughs> so, What version of cartridge you have, but uh, it's on the internet. And if you ever have a cartridge, you can try it out and see if this plays you want. And that's so good. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it was uh, memorable. You know, I had lots of uh, found memory. Wata certainly he wasn't. You know, he was. It wasn't like he was a super programmer. Uh, a lot of people. You know, there are a lot of fables on the internet saying that he was like a, this uh, super programmer. Well, he wasn't really that kind of a hacker, but he was very orchestrated. You know, he was a very, you know, he was a methodological engineer. Mm-hmm. So he meticulously tried and tried until he got you know, perfection in his code, which was also, you know, also similar to my, my taste. So that's why I think we work together very well. So this kind of shows up in all his work that he had done. So I think that was one reason why he was able to uh, propel Nintendo Into the new heights because I think he was, he really wanted to. Um, he really, I think back in the background, uh, he really tried. You know, came up. A lot of people probably came up with the ideas. And I think he would methodologically try every one of them to see which one's successful, and then try the one that seems the most viable. You know, not just go out and say this is the best. Right? So that's the way to do it. That's the way to do know. it. Yeah. So uh, again, as you say, we're really sorry. We really lost him in the midst of in the, in the heights of his career. But uh, yes. well, but, but, I think it's, but I think his legacy lives on. And I think that the being involved in the gaming world early on in my career, before I, was, you know, I decided to you know focus on on my PhD, and for some reason I became a professor. Right. Although I didn't intend to, you know, but really um, helped me to in the later parts of my career to uh, know what game how gaming processors are architected and allow me to have. You know, very strong beliefs that these can be applied to HPC. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Satrushan, this reminds me of the movie uh, Jiro Loves Sushi, and the <laughs> pursuit of perfection. I think ah. he's a, you know, he is. And I don't know if he's still living. The movie is a few years old, and he was already old at that time. But it is absolutely inspiring. Just the level of meticulous attention to perfection. That yeah, that was just continuous, continuous. Even after it was perfect, he would make it even more perfect. Yeah, well, you know, we were you know, in the early days of gaming, we were forced to do that. In fact, I think people do that for gamers now. But now it's online, so people make can make adjustments later. Hmm. But in, in the days of ROM cartridges, right? These were the early days of gaming. Once you produce a ROM, that's it. Right? Yeah, you have bugs. There's no way to patch. In fact, there's no way to patch it up because. Yeah. There's no internal state in these machines, so you have to be perfect from day one. Uh, these ROM cartridges, now, of course, you know, there are a few bugs here and there, but because you know, for example, I remember one game I developed, and this was also ROM cartridge for Nintendo, and I was writing my master's thesis at the same time. 
and uh, it became very treacherous because as I was working my research, you know, I had to spend you know many sleepless nights trying to finish the thing. Mm. And then I, I finished, and um, you know, was still a few months away from my completing my master's, writing my thesis. So I said, okay, I'm going to stop now. This my gaming the development. This one's done. So I totally focused on research. Don't call me. <laughs> and then, and then, like two weeks later, like you know, a month later, I get a phone call saying, "We found a bug in 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 your program. Can you come and fix it?" And I'm like, "This, <laughs> this totally entrenched in my finished my master's. Somehow trying to graduate." And I said, "I said, okay, I gotta come in." And um, and this is really weird. Bug, which of course no, you never anticipate a bug, but this um, you know after many many test runs, still there was this bug which was you know was there. I won't go into details; it's complicated. It only shows up in very rare cases, but still a bug. So you know, it took me like a you know, week to fix it. Fortunately, it was just before the ROM was you know, was being bur- was uh, being burned in, so it was you know, was caught just in time. So we really had to. Play, we had to play our, the games ourselves. We had to test players, and we had to play it many, 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 many times to weed out the bugs. But again, because there are no way to patch them, so we had to be you know, paying attention to every little detail mm-hmm. during those days. Uh, there's, yeah, there's no patch 1.0.0a1 available <laughs> for download. Yeah, <laughs> amazing stuff. Well, Satoshi Matsuaka, just a, a real thrill and a great pleasure to speak with you. Yeah, yeah, it was mine. Hope uh, didn't go too much over time. Thank you very much. Thank you for being generous with your time. We kept you way above what time you'd allocated to us. So very grateful for that. Look forward to our next opportunity. Yeah, thank you. You know, in several minutes, I have to speak to my to the recent president. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> relaxing, relaxing to opportunity to get myself relaxed before speaking to him. Yeah, he's my boss. <laughs> Brilliant. Excellent. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you. See you. Talk to you again. Bye. That's it for this episode of the At HPC podcast. Every episode is featured on InsideHPC.com and posted on OrionX.net. Use the comment section or tweet us with any questions or to propose topics of discussion. If you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The At HPC podcast is a production of OrionX in association with Inside HPC. Thank you for listening.